Well, good morning. Welcome to La Jolla Community Church, and welcome to worship this morning. Uh, we are going to praise the name of Jesus and sing. If you're able, would you stand? And I uh, hope you could sing, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus.
You may be seated. Would you pray with me, please? Dear Lord, as a church, we pray to you this morning to ask you to help us see this world and our place in it from your perspective. This is very difficult for us to do when we are constantly being bombarded with information and images of atrocities around the globe, it's hard to be optimistic. So we pray that you help us to read your word more often because in the Bible, you have given us your perspective. First of all, we need your perspective globally, especially as the nations misuse their power to threaten the world. In the second Psalm, you asked, why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? Then you say, the one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. In these two sentences, you have assured us that you are in control and no nation on earth can thwart your will. So there's no need for us to despair. Second, we need your perspective personally. When our circumstances in life appear to be random and discouraging, you use the Apostle Paul in Acts 17 to tell us that our place in this world is exactly where you want us to be. He said that you made from one man every nation of men and that you determined the times set for them and the exact places where they should live. So you are in charge of our lives too. And you have given us new lives in Christ. So please help us to do what Paul recommended to the Colossians in chapter 3. In the message translation, he said, So if you're serious about living this new resurrection life with Christ, act like it. Pursue the things over which Christ presides. Don't shuffle along, eyes to the ground, absorbed with the things right in front of you. Look up and be alert to what is going on around Christ. That's where the action is. See things from his perspective. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, good morning, and welcome to La Jolla Community Church. I'm Drake, and uh, I'm so glad you're here to worship God with us this morning. Um, hey, if you didn't make it out yesterday, we had a blast with about 450 people at our Easter block party. Um, it was really fun, bouncy houses, Easter egg hunts, uh, uh, some good snacks, all kinds of good stuff happening. And if you didn't make it, we'd love to have you on Palm Sunday, which is uh, just next week. And we'll be celebrating in worship um, Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And then we'll have a hot brunch, eggs, sausage, guacamole, the works. Um, so uh, yeah, come out and join us on Palm Sunday. Um, and then that's the start of Holy Week. So Friday, um, not this coming Friday, but the Friday after, we'll have a, a Good Friday service, which is a really uh, just a a solemn moment for us to remember um, Jesus' sacrifice and death, um, and then Easter, of course, uh, on Sunday. Um, so, so join us on Sunday for a for a, a time to celebrate Jesus' resurrection, and um, and also make some uh, fun dinner plans yourself and uh, cook something yummy. Um, and then when you walked in, I hope you got a bulletin. Um, if not, there's some in the foyer. Uh, we'd love to get your email address so we can spam you several times a week. Um, uh, we'll get you a great email once, uh, uh, usually comes on Wednesday, about what we're doing in the church, uh, upcoming events, etc. Um, and then on Friday, we do the Read, Think, Pray, which if you don't read the Read, Think, Pray, uh, it's really awesome way to get ready for the sermon. Um, so Steve writes it, or, or whoever is speaking that Sunday writes it, um, and it, it's a section on reading. Um, uh, 
scripture and then uh, thinking about uh, what it means and then praying over it. And um, and if you do that, the sermon just uh, really connects with you in, in a deeper way. So I uh, encourage you to do that. If you've been on our email list and you're having trouble getting the email, certainly uh, come come find us and we'll, we'll get that straightened out for you. Um, so, uh, oh, and then on the back of the card, uh, we'd love to be praying for you. And anything that's going on, good or bad, uh, we hold these prayers confidential, but we pray over them every week. Um, and uh, if you have the same thing happening every week and you're like, no, nah, I'm not going to write it because I wrote it once three years ago, but it's the same thing, we would love to hear it every week. Um, that's not boring. That's not uh, a bad thing to do. That's just a, a mark of faith that you're returning in prayer to the, to the same thing. So, um, yeah, uh, and let's continue worshiping with the sermon. Thanks, Drake. Well, I'm glad some of you are sitting in here today. Uh, we have a bunch of people out on the patio drinking coffee, uh, watching the sermon. Uh, Sherry, thank you for your prayer. Uh, uh, these prayers, I, I want to just comment for a moment. Um, <clears throat> if, you're ever asked, if you're ever asked or if you ever feel like you'd like to volunteer to pray, don't be intimidated by that because it looks like there's no way... Uh, you know, God was taking notes during Sherry's prayer. Did you notice that? And it was just such a rich, I mean, I felt like I was being pulled into the throne room of the king. Well, that's the idea of prayer, but it starts with, Lord, help, Lord, thank you, Lord, guide me. It's simple. And so if you ever have a sense that I'd like to lead the congregation of prayer, it's not a, a moment of, of you being on, in the spotlight. It's about you simply saying, I'm willing uh, to lead the people in prayer. That's a, that's a, a neat thing to think about you doing. Uh, don't be intimidated. Uh, everybody who does it says, I was too intimidated for the longest time. And then once they do it, they say, gosh, that was pretty neat. That was easy. Uh, I should say it was simple, not easy. right? Uh, but to, to get up and pray for us, consider doing that. And let me just extend that into, uh, yesterday, 450 people, the average age was eight. I don't know. I mean, it was like so many little kids there, and the parents being dragged around with them having a great time. Um, but it took a small army of people to host that event. And so as you think about uh, how God wants to use you, it could be as simple as helping kids have a great time at an event like yesterday. It could be leading us in prayer. It could be being a, a counselor at camp. You might think the last thing I'd want to do is to go for a weekend to Forest Home with a bunch of uh, elementary school kids or junior high kids or high school kids. It'll be life-changing for them. It'll be life-changing for you. So, so don't ever discount anything as a way for you to serve, for you to bless, and for you to be blessed. Otherwise, we start to miss out on too many opportunities because one will never be good enough. It'll never be convenient. Uh, throwing that out there because um, we live in a world where we assume that everybody is going to take care of it. Everybody else is going to take care of it. Uh, I'd love to change the world, but... Um, I don't know what to do, so I'll leave it up to you. Uh, with that, let me ask you this question. Uh, how are you seeing your life right now? Uh, how are you seeing, if you were to stop and take stock, take temperature of yourself relationally, emotionally, internally, uh, what's going on inside of you right now? What is happening? What's the context of your world right now that you experience in your inner life? If, if we could listen in, uh, to the conversation in your head, what would we hear right now? Would it be constantly going over the same stuff? Would it be this spin cycle? Would we all, after listening to your life for a while, be able to complete the sentences just before you say them? 
uh, would we say, hey, would, you, would we want to break into your thoughts and say, hey, time out, can we just talk for a minute? Um, don't, you don't you see the pattern here? Uh, I won't ask for a show of hands, but <clears throat> think about how well you understand the, uh, the life you were living 20 years ago or 30 years ago or five years ago. You are an expert on that, right? You have enough distance now. You can say, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, I get what was going on then. I didn't understand it then. I know it now, and I so much appreciate it. I wish I could go back and experience it. Or I wish I could go back and repair it. Uh, wow. How, if we could take the time and get everybody's take, how would you describe how you're seeing the world beyond you? How would you uh, be reflecting and telling us about the world that you're seeing? Uh, that's a fascinating conversation to have with people. If once you get past all the opinions, once you say, okay, shut off CNN, shut off Fox, shut off whatever you listen to, and let, stop letting other people speak for you and tell you what the world's about, if you were to look out there, what would you see? How would you come away from that and tell us what you see? And, and, and then the question would be, how are you understanding it? How are you understanding the world within you? How are you understanding the world around you? This sounds so basic, I just wish I did it. I, I, I know the context of my life internally. I know the context of, of, my, of my, my world externally. It's, it's appalling that I don't take more time to really think about. I spend lots of time stewing over stuff and worrying about stuff. Um, but the idea of, of, of actually processing stuff and saying, what am I seeing? What am I feeling? What does it mean? Um, that, that's the context for what we're going to talk about today. Uh, so I, I just saved you several hundred dollars in counseling. If you just start doing that, maybe several thousand dollars and months of, of effort. Um, because that's what great friendships do, by the way. Great friendships give us a context for doing that. Uh, literally, formal counseling does that. Uh, serious Bible study does that. It pulls us into our inner world in a way that we have a guide. It pulls us out of our inner world to the external world, and we also have a guide. Um, Sherry, who did the prayer today, probably has run the Colorado, Colorado River more times than anybody you know. So when I was walking in today, looking at this beautiful spring weather, I said, hey, I wonder what the flow is like on the Colorado River. That lady could tell you, probably, you know. Uh, this is what's so neat about having people right close to us who are guides. And, and so don't ever... Um, be afraid or embarrassed uh, or timid to make a, you know, to avail yourself of those wise counselors around you uh, who can help you understand what life in you and around you means. So this is so essential, this idea of, of naming the context, uh, but then getting the perspective. Because context is simply a story. It's a bunch of data. Perspective is the plot. Perspective is the plot. The truth of your life is more than the facts of your life. you got to get the facts straight. That's a big job sometimes. Because the facts all, 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 often sound like um, denial. No, that's not what I'm doing. That's what, I want, what I'm feeling. Uh, projection. All those people and blame. It's their fault, right? Uh, but the facts are really important to ascertain. Yes, I did it. Yes, that's how I'm feeling. Yes, that's how I'm thinking. Now, what does that mean? Because all of our thoughts and all of our behaviors uh, are attached to something. 
They're all inherently meaningful. Uh, you might say, well, no. If you're in my head, it's a jumble of confusion or, or accusation or opinion. You know, no, it's meaningful. It's coming from somewhere. We are all experts in our life. We just don't know how to articulate it. So we get caught in this spin cycle moment. And we start uh, internalizing what should be really pushed out there. I'm not responsible for world peace, though I care about it. And it internalizes uh, what, uh, externalizes uh, what should be in here. Somebody should do something about things so I'm better. I have a better life. So that's why we seek understanding rather than assuming we understand. This is one of the most basic relational skills we can learn. Seeking understanding versus assuming what we understand. I've done the word study on assume with you. I won't repeat it again. But we need to seek understanding. It's like saying this. <clears throat> What's wrong when somebody is crying? Instead of saying, hey, I see you're crying. What are you feeling? Complete joy. I'm just moved so, oh, thank goodness I didn't say what's wrong. You know, what are you feeling? Uh, is Instead of assuming, okay, what did I do now? What? You're crying, what did I do? Why is it always about you? <laughs> oh, sorry, uh, I know, what are you feeling? You know, I'm really frustrated with myself because I forgot to do this and then that happened, this happened, this happened, that happened, that happened. I got all these people I need to go back and, well, how can I be helpful to you? You know, versus I'll take care of it. You see where this goes? The idea of asking questions rather than making assumptions. Um, um, <laughs> here's one. Parenting is so easy until you have kids. Parenting is so easy. In fact, I would just make it more general, uh, not to offend anybody who's single or does not have children. But I would say my, the people I've known over my life who are the greatest authorities on marriage are those who are not yet married. And those who are the greatest authorities on parenting are those who do not yet have kids. It's so awesome. When I, didn't have, when I wasn't married or had kids, I was a walking, talking encyclopedia and authority and all those things. Um, and uh, <laughs> as a little kid, we'd be driving along, and I'd see some really neat-looking car. I'd go, Mom, why don't we drive that car? When I get older, I'm going to drive that car. She'd say, oh, my gosh, I can't even explain it to you. you know. Um, so this is, true, this is true when it comes to the Bible as well. Context and perspective are essential for making sense of life. It's essential for making sense of the Bible. Because the Bible is really a description of life. God's view on us and information about us that shapes our view of God. Uh, and so rather than pretending we're experts or dismissing ourselves saying, I'll never be an expert so I won't read it. And I won't ask for show of hands. It's always shocking to me, but not, not really surprising after so many years of doing this, how many people are intimidated about reading the Bible and indifferent. Why? And they have all kinds of excuses and, and reasons, and I'm not belittling those excuses or reasons. It's just that, well, if you don't start, you'll never get over that thing that you're presenting as a reason you don't read it. So many sharp people would say, I don't read it because I don't understand it. Ah, I get an idea. I got a wild idea. Start reading it. Get into a life group. No, because I'll be with people who are half my age and they'll know twice as much. Well, even if you don't go in the group, they're still going to know twice as much. And, you know, so why not connect the dots on that? Um, context and perspective are essential for making sense of life. How's that going for you? It's essential for making sense of the Bible. How's that going for you? Um, because what? We want the fullest meaning of our life. We want to have the fullest understanding of the world that we can possibly have. We want to have the fullest understanding of the Word of God. 
Because it tells us who we are. Not by way of imposition. Here's who you should be. Here's who you're not. Though it does give us that. It really starts with, here's who you are. Do you want to be who you are, where you are? That's a simple question. Do you want to be here, feeling the way you're feeling now, thinking the thoughts you're feeling now, or do you think there's an alternative you'd like to explore? Nothing more frustrating than being out in a boat in the middle of the Pacific or in the mountains somewhere and saying, I have no idea where I am. Because even if you could ask for help, they'd say, "Well, well, come help, where are you? Well, that's an interesting question, philosophically and existentially. I have no idea where I am. So the Bible wants to tell us who we are. It wants to give us uh, coordinates, right, for understanding who we are. So we can un- have the, the uh, fullest understanding of the Word of God and the fullest understanding of our life. There's this fancy Latin phrase, sensus plenior. Sensus plenior. It just means the fullest sense. It's a fancy theological term, but it's a super helpful term. Because we want to have the fullest understanding. Notice that that doesn't necessarily mean the, all the information we want or that we could possess. It's enough of an understanding to get it right. You ask a small child, uh, tell me, give me your theology. Now you wouldn't say it that way because the kid would go, oh, what's, a, what's a theology? But I want one. <laughs> no. Um, if you say, what, what do you believe about God? Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And we, we first start with, oh, that's so cute. But then we stop and think, oh my gosh, that's a phenomenal summary of the Bible. That's a phenomenally sophisticated theological assessment of the Word of God. That represents right there a census plenier. And it just gets better. The more data we have, the more we can connect the dots on the people, the places, the things, and, and all those elements that make Scripture Scripture, we start to see patterns emerge. We say, this is mind-boggling. It's like the first people you imagine who started to see the patterns in the sky, what stars were doing. Uh, the, the, the planets moving through the sky over the seasons. And all of a sudden it's like, oh my gosh, there's a rhyme and a reason for every season, right? That's powerful, powerful, powerful. And so um, we see Jesus bringing a fuller perspective to every context that he is in. And just by being present, Jesus brings a fuller perspective to every context he is in. It's presented one way, and by the time Jesus has been there, we have a whole different view of it. This woman was caught in adultery. What does the law say? We should stone her, right? By the end of that, that encounter, the crowd has dispersed, and Jesus is saying, uh, is there no one here to, to um, uh, accuse you or convict you? Uh, neither do I. Go and sin no more. And et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? So every time he shows up, he's not that guy that shows up and is the know-it-all. But when he shows up, you start to understand the context for the first time clearly, and you have a whole new perspective. This made some people mad. This made some people glad, made some people sad. A rich young ruler saying, I've, I've, I've got it all wired, I've put it all together, I kept all the commandments, now what? I know, give everything you have away because it's an encumbrance to you, and come follow me. He walks away sad. The people who accused the woman caught in adultery walked away mad. The people who said, if you are the Son of God, heal me, have faith, uh, believe, help my unbelief. 
And they, they walk away healed and they're glad, right? So these are the powerful encounters that were contextual. But the context, the facts, weren't the whole story. It was a truth that they encountered that was the whole story. Are you with me on this? I'm giving you some stuff that might sound abstract and, and, and esoteric in some ways. But this is all such elemental stuff about who we are in our bones. Because this is at the core and the source of who we are and how we engage the world and all the questions we ask of it. And all the meaning we hope to find in it. <clears throat> so here we see Jesus um, in Matthew 16. We, we've been looking at Matthew's gospel. And so you have an opening, a genealogy, and some birth narrative. And then Christ facing Satan in the desert. That's kind of the opening chapter. It's like, whoa. You go from zero to 60 in a second. You open the book and next thing, wow, this is amazing. Then you're into what we call the Beatitudes. That takes us up through, uh, so you have one to four of these introductory things, and then five to seven is what we call a Sermon on the Mount. And then you get into these sections. Uh, there's five of them, kind of like the books of Moses from the Old Testament, the structure that Matthew chooses to use. Why? He's writing to Jews. And in these five structures, uh, we see a bunch of teaching and, and, and miracles and all kinds of things, parables. Uh, and then uh, next week we're going to start uh, the final section before the very end section. And so the fifth, fifth one is coming up. But in this fourth section, it's, it's about chapters 14 to 20, the big section of Matthew. Uh, I, 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 we're going through these sections. I'm just taking like one v- passage or two little passages that would give us a sense of that section. And then what we're going to do after Easter is go back and work our way more de- de- with more detail in Matthew and say, okay, let's undercover the story behind the story as we move back to Matthew. We have a big picture perspective. Let's go back and put some more detail, more meat on the bones. So here we are, 14 to 20 is a section we're looking at, but we're in chapter 16. We're going to look at two uh, short passages. Um, Just let me throw out a word for you. You might hear, you'll run into it, and it it would be good to know this word. Uh, It's kind of a technical word, but it's a good word to know. It's a word pericope, pericope. And often you'll hear people who don't believe in the Bible anymore using it as a weapon to, to, to pound people who believe in the Bible. They'll say, well, you know, the Bible is a series of pericopes. And you go, all right, your point being. Well, Matthew took a bunch of stories and things that happened in Jesus' life, and he arranged them in an orderly way. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all did this. And they're, they're just pericopes. And you act, the person will act as if you can dismiss them. You go, so what's your point? Well, there are these distinct things. He said this in this this situation. He did this here. And the author has arranged those into a flow, kind of like if you're telling the short version of your life or the long version of of your life. You take stories indicative, little sections. Well, this time when I was 10 years old, this happened. That's a pericope. It's a self-contained little component that you link to the rest of your life. And depending on how much time you have or how much interest your audience has, you'll keep linking them and giving you more detail within the pericope uh, or around the pericope. So these are all these pericopes, these little passages. We call them sections or passages. So here we have two pericopes in, in, in the 16th chapter. And you might say, well, that explains why when I'm reading the Bible, it seems like something out of, no, out of nowhere comes in the middle of something. Or why did that happen? Well, because the author was saying, as they're writing about Jesus and, and they tell a story, or Paul does this in his letters. He's making a point, and like what we do, he'll say, well, hold on a second, but the ba 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 now let me get back to my point. 
And so uh, that's what's going on in Matthew. So we see these two pericopes divided and then followed, and they follow something and they precede something. So as, as Matthew's writing to us, he's helping us get a flow of the narrative. He's giving us a context and trying to help us get perspective. So here's two examples of this. Uh, very short. The first one is Matthew 16, 1 to 4. The Pharisees and Sadducees came to Jesus and tested him by asking him to show them a sign from heaven. This is loaded. We could spend 45 minutes on this. I promise I won't spend more than 30. Um, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. If you've come to church, you've heard these terms a zillion times. Uh, we don't quite know exactly what, where the word Pharisee came from, but we do know what they did. The Pharisees were part of a renewal movement after the people of Israel came back from exile. They said, we were so irresponsible in the way that, the, the way that we um, embraced and understood and obeyed the word of God. Let's not make that mistake again. So it came out as a It came out of exile as a very positive movement of renewal. But very quickly, it it hardened. And that is, it it became inflexible. And it it became more constrictive because they said, well, don't work on the Sabbath. Hmm. I know. Let's make up a hundred rules to the point that now if you're in Israel and you're in a hotel and it happens to be on Friday night and you're not even thinking about it, you get in the elevator and it won't go anywhere. And you hit the buttons and the buttons don't work, and all of a sudden it, the doors close, you go up to every floor, they open, and they stay open for a prescribed time, and people are getting in and out, and they got black hats on and big beards, and, you know, and you're thinking, this is the most inefficient elevator I've ever been on. Ah, and you'll go and complain to somebody, and they'll say, ah, I'm so sorry, you got in the Shabbat elevator. Okay, what's the Shabbat elevator? Well, you know, we say don't work on the Sabbath. I'm not working. I'm just in an elevator. I'm not climbing the steps. Why is that work? Because it's moving? No. Because it's an electric current that activates those buttons. And an electric current is the equivalent of fire. And you can't start a fire because that's work. And you're thinking, how did we get from that to that? Well, this is what the Pharisees were doing. They owned the Bible. They were the authority in the Bible. And that's why constantly you see them approaching Jesus and confronting him, asking him trick questions so they can embarrass him or discredit him. Now the Sadducees thought that was stupid. They didn't, they didn't mind using that word. They didn't say it because they were very power conscious. They were the elites. They controlled the temple. They, couldn't, they needed the Pharisees to keep order with the people. But the Sadducees were atheists and agnostics, basically. Believe it or not, it's crazy to think about it. The Sadducees were fairly atheistic in the way that they functioned. It's all about power and control. We run the temple. The temple is a source of massive revenue. We control it. The Pharisees control the people's heads and their behavior. And so they're super powerful too. And they're, they're really borderline agnostic. Why do they need to worry about God much? Because they got the Bible and they can tell you what it means what it should mean. So here you have these two groups of people who don't like each other, don't talk to each other, put up with each other because they have to, both now with you know, a plan coming to Jesus. So Jesus has managed what no one else on earth can do. They've, he's united the Pharisees and the Sadducees with common cause. So they come to him and they start to test him by asking him to show them a sign from heaven. He replied, And this is, all you sailors and fishermen are going to love this. He replied this, when evening comes, you say, he's he's saying, here's the context, 
when evening comes, you say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And they're going, well, no. And in the morning, you say, today it will be stormy, for the sky is red and overcast. They're going, yeah. We, again, we came to ask you for a sign from heaven. And he says, you know how to interpret the appearance of the sky. You know the context. The elemental weather conditions that tell you something. But you cannot interpret the signs of the times. This was a super elegant way of saying you don't know your elbow from your rear end. There are other ways we say it in our culture. You don't know what you don't know. And you don't care what you don't know. And it shows. And of course we know the modern version. Red sky in the morning, sailors take warning. Red sky at night, sailors delight. It still works. And then he says this, a wicked and adulterous generation. Adulterous. Okay, wicked, I get adulterous. What he's saying is you've, you've defiled and compromised your relationship with God. You have become unfaithful to God. Because you get ticked off when I heal people on the Sabbath. Your heart doesn't break for the people. Your heart is hardened and burdened with your desire to control everybody. So you get angry that I heal somebody on the Sabbath. You've lost perspective. You don't know who you serve anymore. You're serving your ego. Now the crazy thing is, uh, you know, it says Jesus then left them and went away. The crazy thing is that both these groups feel hyper-righteous in their roles. The Sadducees were guarding the integrity of the temple. Well, they're guarding their franchise. But they're guarding, in the best sense, the integrity of the temple. And the Pharisees are guarding the integrity of the word. But here's, notice in both of them, they're saying, hey, uh, yes, uh, you've taught all these amazing things. The people are somehow, because they're so ignorant, they're captivated by you. Uh, you've done all these miracles. You've told all these parables. You've, you've you know, confounded us every time we try to entrap you. So why don't you just show us a sign from heaven? It's like, wait a minute, what else do you need? See, what they were demanding was something sensational. How are you doing with that? I mean, and how are we doing with that? Because what happens is, Jesus is in your presence, and they're saying, show me a sign. And we just sang a song that said, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face. And so you can imagine Jesus, without being snarky about it, just saying, You want a sign from heaven? Look no further. You're looking at the sign from heaven. Now, technically, a, a miracle is a category lower than a sign from heaven. A miracle is a, um, a dunamis, an act of power. Um, a, a sign from heaven is a semion, from what we get sem semiotics, ultimately. Um, it's a sign from heaven. And Jesus is saying, this is the sign from heaven. This is the kingdom of God breaking into your world, and you have no clue, and you are the authorities of the law. I skipped over a verse on purpose. A wicked and adulterous generation looks for a sign, but none will be given except the sign of Jonah. This is a super cryptic thing. Good luck finding reference to the sign of Jonah anywhere but here. You can find the story of Jonah in the Old Testament. So uh, most of us, uh, if, if we remember the story, see it as, a, as a, a, almost a kid's story. 
you know, you know, Jonah in the belly of the whale. Every agnostic and atheist says it's a ridiculous story. You die after three days from methane poisoning or something. And every uh, Christian's bent over backwards to try to make sense of it as in, well, no, scientifically it could probably work, you know, and miss the whole point. What is the sign of Jonah? The sign of Jonah is a, is a man was sent to save people. He didn't want to because they were rotten people. Nineveh, uh, the Assyrian uh, kingdom. These were mean, rotten people. Uh, when they went to war and they caught you, they did horrible things to you. They kept you alive as long as possible so you could see every bad thing they were doing to you. And everybody else could see it as a warning to them. They were very, very powerful. And um, uh, they lived in a place uh, called Nineveh, which at the time was the largest, most technologically advanced city on the planet. Sewers, I mean, all kinds of modern technology relative to the time. And so for, for uh, you know, a couple thousand years, they have this lock on the best place, best real estate, right? And um, they offend God. And God says, they're done. But Jonah, I'm sending you to give him one last chance to repent. Jonah is not happy about it. You know the story. He jumps in. And there's a poem in the middle of Jonah's um, book where he describes his death experience. The seaweed is encircling me. Um, my soul is diminishing. And he describes a death experience. He dies in that whale. Now, that's shocking. You think, oh no, you've just given it up for the atheists and the agnostics. No, no, I've just given it up to the authority of God. Because Jesus is saying it's the sign of Jonah. What does Jonah do? He, in his case, he disobeys God, who has sent him on a mission. He dies... And God revives him by he spewed out on the beach, and God brings him back, and Jonah says, Okay, I get I understand the message. Now he goes to Nineveh, he tells them to repent. Unfortunately for him, they do. Now he's upset. Now he goes and sulks under a plant that grows up overnight, lush over miraculously, grows up overnight, lush, beautiful, shading him, comforting him. It dies. Now he's really ticked off. And God confronts him. He's like the first of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. God says, wait a minute, wait a minute. 120,000 people you don't care about? Created my image, lost to me, rebellious against me, doing horrific things to other people? I'm giving them a chance to repent? And, and their behavior changed like that. For a brief time, the, the Ninevites were like the model students. And then they, within 100 years, they were bad again, and they were destroyed forever by the Babylonians. But what's going on here is God says, the plant, it's a plant. These are people. So the sign of Jonah, obviously, is Jesus saying, I am going to give my life willingly, not reluctantly, for people that you, who are asking me for a sign, don't care about and resent. Even if I explain to you the sign from heaven that's coming, it's the sign of Jonah. And you're going to be like Jonah in your attitude that, why the Gentiles? Who cares about the Gentiles? Every one of those Pharisees, every morning, would pray, Lord, thank you for not making me a Gentile or a woman. Well, a dead man was brought back to life. Dead people were brought back to life. What's not to like about that? So Jonah's life was over when he enters the whale. God is offering Nineveh redemption if they repent. Jesus' life is over when he enters the tomb. 
And we are the walking dead, meanwhile, living under a curse, making the best of it as we can, paying attention to the context of our life, but having no perspective on what it means. So in both contexts, uh, in both cases, the context is bleak. But from God's perspective, it's a rescue operation. So in this passage, in this section of Matthew, Jesus is saying, here's the sign from heaven, I've come to rescue the world. You've seen the miracles, you've heard the parables, you've seen the authority in my teaching. You've seen how I've demonstrated what it looks like to be a servant leader. We'll see that more in bold relief next week. And now you're asking me for a sign. You're not really interested in a sign. You just want to be entertained with something sensational. And this is where I come back to us. Uh, We are so uh, inattentive to what Jesus has done and is doing, that we constantly say, I need more. I need more if I'm going to believe in Jesus. I'm going to need more if I'm going to serve Jesus. I'm going to need more if I give up money or time or talent sacrificially for the cause of Christ, because I need more. It could be more signs and wonders, which are not bad, but I need more of those. I need more proof. I need bomb-proof arguments from my non-believing friends. I need the proof of better prosperity in my life. I need the proof of, you're not delivering. Your job is to make me happy. I'm not happy. You're not doing your job, Jesus. You see where this goes? And it's so subtle because we have no perspective. We just have context. This is my life internally and externally, and I don't like it. And God's saying, what else can I do? Because you're like the junkie who says, I just need a fix. That's all I need, just one fix. Uh-huh. And then what are you, you going to need? Another fix. More, 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 more. I want more. Enough is not enough. This is their dilemma, and this is our dilemma. But Jesus gives them, and Jesus gives us, a larger perspective on his kingdom. The second pericope, in the same chapter, uh, Jesus has been doing most of his ministry in the north of Israel, Galilee, a beautiful place, beautiful lake. Uh, Right now there's snow on Mount Hermon. People are still skiing into the spring. Uh, The area underneath it is lush and verdant. The area all along that Lebanese border and the Syrian border is spectacularly lush. It's so lush it's called the Hula Valley. The Hula Marshes. It was a big malarial pit at one point, and now it's just you know nothing but verdant greenery, um, just north of the Sea of Galilee. So Jesus has been bringing his disciples all along, and now this is a kind of the key point, kind of a commencement, if you will, a commissioning time. He gives them the final great commission at the very end after the resurrection, but this is the commissioning uh, for them joining him in his mission. Because it's at this point that Jesus is turning toward Jerusalem. So, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, this is north of the Sea of Galilee, under the shadow of Mount Hermon, they call it Mount Hermon, he asked his disciples, what do people say the Son of Man is? Son of Man is a phrase out of Daniel, talking about this Messiah figure who come and redeem and rescue Israel. They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah. Still others, Jeremiah, are one of the prophets. But Jesus says to them, but what about you? You're right, that's the context. What's your perspective? What about you? How do you see it? 
who do you say I am? And so Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. Oh, that's interesting. Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. You couldn't have figured this out. It's rational, but you couldn't have figured it out by rationalizing. This is something that you've, you've just had an intuitive gift from God that, oh my gosh, this is how it all lines up. What Simon had was perspective in the context of all those events. All of a sudden, for a flash of, of insight, he's got this intuitive moment of, oh, you're the son of God. He's right there in front of me. It's rational, but it's supra-rational. And so Jesus says, this is not just you figuring it out. It's God showing you. And of course, we know the rest of, you know, Luke tells us then what happened after that. When Jesus says, now we're going to go to Jerusalem, he's like, don't do it. And, and, and Simon is rebuked by Jesus saying, get behind me, Satan. It's like, well, wait a minute, how did I have the... Um, that's another story. Caesarea Philippi. Uh, in... Um, um, in this era, in the first century, it was a, a way of honoring Caesar, Caesarea, and um, it was also a way of honoring um, Herod's uh, son, after Herod died, who was now the governor of that area, Philip. He's what they call the Tetrarch. Herod dies, the four sons each get, each get a section of his kingdom, which is under the authority of the Romans, and so now it's called Caesarea Philippi because there's a Caesarea on the coast, and to distinguish them is Caesarea on the coast and Caesarea Philippi. But before it was called that, uh, in, in 300 BC, Alexander, i.e. Alexander the Great, from the age of 21 to 31, basically conquered the known world. Everywhere he went, the Greek culture followed, and that's why the Egyptians spoke Greek, they spoke Greek. And Greek became the ultimate culture, even to the Romans. The Romans were all about being Romans, but they wanted to be Greek versions of Romans. And so... Uh, when, when this happens, that area that has been forever a grotto, a beautiful, if, you have, if you've been there, you know it's just stunningly beautiful. Um, and there was an earthquake there at some point, so what we see now is, is affected by the earthquake that crushed part of this grotto, but it's still stunningly beautiful. Well, for literally uh, hundreds and, and even thousands of years, this has been such a stunning place uh, that, the, that the, the various tribes there would worship idols there. And so during Israel's time, when they took over all the land, the tribe of Dan lived up in this northern part of Israel. And Dan was constantly being compromised, if, you've seen, if you read the Bible, by these, the, 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 um, the false god called Baal, Baal, B-A-P-A-L, Baal. And so Baal worship was everywhere in Israel, especially up in the north with Dan, because the people would do all these uh, you know, rituals and perversion of, of things at that grotto. And it was stunningly beautiful, um, but it was so superstitious for the people that they called it the gateway to Hades, the gateway to hell. So when Alexander comes through, he, he kicks all the Baal guys out. He says, this is now the grotto of Pan, and so the name is now called Peneus. And today it's called Beneus. That's the Arabic uh, deformation of the word Peneus. So if you go there on a tour, they go, we're going to Beneus today. And you show up and you go, hey, I wonder if this is the same place as Caesarea Philippi. Yes, it is. And so what it became was a center of perverse idolatry. You know, Pan is presented as this you know, forest nymph fawn kind of a thing. 
Pan was really a, a lecherous uh, fertility cult. Uh, pandemonium is where we get the word pandemonium. And so it was just a, it was a debauched, idolatrous place uh, that people gathered uh, for desperate hope to have something happen in their life. So Jesus takes the disciples there. No Jew would want to go there. Jesus takes them there and says, hey, what do you see? Beautiful stones, incredibly beautiful water, waterfall grotto. The water comes into this grotto from Mount Hermon internally. It disappears for a second, and it comes out as the source of the Jordan River. So the, the, God, the priest of Pan would, would, would slaughter animals and do all kinds of bizarre human um, interactions, and um, not really bizarre human interactions, human interactions that they made bizarre, and then they would put, throw the, the sacrificed animals and the blood of those animals into the pool, under the grotto. Then they'd run down and they'd say, is it coming out in the river? And if they saw blood seeping into the river, they'd say, ah, oh, the, the God of Pan accepted our offering. If it didn't work, they had to go do it over and over again until either the person couldn't pay anymore or they got what they would paid for. So they're watching this. And Jesus says, who do you say I am? There's images of Baal and Pan and all these false gods carved into the rocks, set up as statues. All these people doing these crazy things, yelling, screaming, moaning, you know, gesticulating. Uh, it's the stench of slaughter and, and, and the depraved laughter of people being crazy. And, and they're all going, why are we here? And what are we supposed to do? And Jesus says, hey, by the way, who do you think I am? You're not that. At standing at the gates of hell? No, you're not that. You're the son of the living God. These are dead idols. You're the son of the living God. He goes, right, exactly. See these rocks? I can build my kingdom on these rocks. Peter, you're a rock. I can build a kingdom on people like you. And confessions like your confession. Whoa. Powerful. He is the son of the living God, the God of the living, not the false God of the dead. Pan is also the source of the word panic. Uncontrollable fear that leads people to do irrational things. Like Christians who have a very clearly documented account of the risen and reigning Lord asking for more. I need more proof. I need more assurance. I need more signs and wonders because this is not enough. I'm looking for blood in the water one more time just to be sure that the signs are still working in the prescribed and subscribed pattern of things because my assumptions are Lord of this grotto. My needs, wants, and desires are Lord of this grotto. Not that any of that is bad. What's better is understanding. Lord, what are you doing? What do you want me to understand about my life? How you're working in my life? Isn't it interesting that God often works most powerfully in the crappiest parts of our life? Not that we should then do horrible things to see God work, but in the, in the times when we think we're discounted, we're no longer eligible, God will not touch us with a 10-foot pole, we are the equivalent of the, pato, the grotto of Pan. There's panic and pandemonium in my life, God won't even want to be near me. I don't deserve him to anyway. You're going, no, no, no. He shows up. What did he say after that encounter with his disciples? The gates of hell shall not prevail against my kingdom. If you're in him, you're in. 
You have the assurance of salvation. You have the assurance of God's presence. He wants to move you from that panic that all of us can feel so easily when we take our eyes off Jesus and stop looking full into his wonderful face. He wants to take us through that panic and that pain and that pandemonium to a place of peace that he alone can give. A peace that even goes beyond our capacity to rationalize it properly. A peace that goes beyond understanding. The peace that passes understanding is not a discount of rationality or the real world. It's an embrace of it in the context of a larger perspective. We cannot know the context of our inner or exterior world, but for the context of the kingdom of God and that perspective that makes everything clear. Even the horrible things that you might be going through with your body or your mind or the relationships or your bank account or whatever. We are so tempted to, be, to pray, Lord, make me the guy who built bigger barns. They can put all my stuff in. Then I'll be set, and then I'll really believe in you, and I'll really do your will and your ministry. And what did, in that parable, what did God say to that person? You fool. Your life is going to be forfeited tonight. You don't need this stuff. What you need is me. So God is not just trying to keep us hungry and needy. and No, he's trying to make us strong and resilient and resourceful. People who have perspective can call reality what it is. If we can't define reality, who can? We get to define reality. That's the crazy thing about what God does in us through his Holy Spirit. We get to say, this world belongs to God. This world is a beautiful creation of God. It's muddied and, in a sense, defiled by our rebellion against God. But we still see the beauty of it, and we still see the beauty in people. And rather than try to make that better, we say, God will make it all better in his way and in his time. Let's follow him. Let's focus on him. Let's give the grace that he gives to us to one another as we're moving somewhere together. Let's stop rationalizing the craziness of our life and start understanding the context with a perspective that says there's more and it's better and it's happening right now through his word, his spirit in you in company with the people around you in the name of Jesus. Holy moly, would that not transform a church? Would that not transform a culture? You don't need 10 more laws or a bigger, better lobbying arm or people making promises they can't possibly keep. I'll make it bigger, better. It's here, Jesus tells his disciples as he's turning toward the cross, not running from it. It's here, that the disciples see in bold relief why the world needs a Savior. And it's here that the focus of Jesus' mission turns toward Jerusalem with us in mind. And we'll talk about that next week. So Lord Jesus, I thank you that you capture our attention uh, in this series of pericopes, these encounters you had with people, these teachable moments, these moments when you would heal and, and do things that were miraculous, not to entertain, but to engage and to transform. We thank you, Lord, that you continue to do that. You speak to us in dreams, and you, you speak to us in signs and wonders, but most importantly, Lord, you speak to us through your word, guided by your Holy Spirit. You show the power of heaven in these acts of love that we do in your name. And so, Lord, we thank you that you've given us everything we need to walk in newness and fullness of life with you now and forever. Help us, Lord, to stop being unfaithful or distracted or so discouraged because somehow we're looking for bigger is better. 
You are enough, Lord. And in, 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 in you, we are enough. We pray this and thank you for this in Jesus' high and holy name. Amen. Well, we continue to worship the Lord during this time of offering ourselves to him. Um, we're not collecting money. We're saying, if you want to give money, fantastic. We need time, talent, treasure. Uh, there's lots of ways to give it. You put it in a box there. You can uh, send it in. This is part of our worship. This offering is you giving you to the Lord. Open your heart, your mind to him as we worship him together in this final song.
This song's for you, from God to you. He's calling you, inviting you, reminding you uh, that you are his beloved. You belong to him. If you haven't, open your heart and your mind to him. Do it today. Say, Lord, this is all new to me. I need to know more. But how about if I uh, accept you into my life and let you be my guide? Uh, Maybe you've been far from him and you feel sort of awkward coming back to him. Don't. He's been hoping and waiting and and maneuvering so that you would get the message it's time to come home. Maybe it's going super well for you and you're tempted to take your eyes off him and say, Lord, I can handle it from here. Uh, let those, these great seasons where everything is going just right be a fantastic um, hymn of praise back to him. Lord, thank you. Help me be a good steward of it. Wherever you are, he wants you to be in relationship with him, to learn from him, to know his ways, to see the full context of your life and have the perspective that allows you to see it's linked to his kingdom. If we can pray for you in any way, uh, don't be awkward or embarrassed about going around the corner to a beautiful prayer garden. There'll be somebody there to say, how can I pray for you? And you can name it or just say pray. Uh, If it's for somebody else or a situation you want prayed about, just tell them. Uh, We believe that prayer is powerful. It moves us closer to God and allows us to hear Him a whole lot better. So now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make His face to shine on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord who loves you more than you can ask or even imagine give you everything you need uh, to walk in that newness and fullness of life that He alone can provide. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. See you next week. Have something to eat and some great time on the patio.